Well, we're in the middle of a series right now that we've called The Gospel Class, and this is intended to be some curriculum that we can kind of collate and lay down so that in the future we can cycle back and remind ourselves of what the gospel is as well as what the gospel is not. Nothing needs more clarity in our day than the truth and the nuances of what the good news of God is in Christ. And this is week two of that gospel class, and we'll have at least one or two more in the future. A little bit about sermon preparation. The sermon prep is what I do week in and week out, sometimes multiple times a week. And as you're putting a sermon together, it, there's a process, and it involves exegesis, and it involves diagramming, it involves outlining, it involves looking at theology books, it involves looking at commentaries, it involves looking at books you've read and collating all sorts of stuff, and you get this data down, and you're trying to pull it together, it involves the, pulling the outline out of it and a proposition. The very last thing that I do is the introduction. And, and the reason is you want to know what you're introducing, if you begin with, let me have a clever story about something to introduce something I'm not sure I'm talking about, that, that, that's a difficult proposition. Well, part of my study this week, I was looking back at some old sermons that we had gone through together in the book of Romans in chapter 3, 4, and 5, specifically on sola fide and justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and, and um, uh, the power of the good news of the gospel itself. As I was thumbing through those old sermons, I came across a sermon from March 2nd, 2014. And as I opened it up and began reading it, I was taken by the introduction. So I just want to read to you the words from the introduction from that sermon on March the 2nd, 2014. We were in Romans chapter 5 at the time. And hear it now... And hear it then and bridge the gap. I think you'll know what I mean after I get into it. These were the words that I said back then. It should be no surprise to anyone in the world in which we live that life is full of threats. Think about it. Viruses and bacteria are a constant threat to health and even life. The Center for Disease Control regularly reports that in any year a new strain of influenza virus could come and wipe out large population numbers in the world. No, I'm not a prophet. That happened back in 1918. The H1N1 pandemic of that year infected 500 million people across the world, including even the remote Pacific Islands and the Arctic, killed up to 100 million of them. Three to five percent of the world's population died, making it one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history. In fact, that pandemic killed more people than World War I. There are threats from heart disease, threats from cancer, th threats from accidents, threats from food. Just think of the threats we face from driving, getting hit by another car, getting into a car accident by ourselves, falling asleep at the wheel, losing control in bad weather, mechanical failures, animal crossings into our paths, people crossing into our paths. There are threats from national enemies, threats from burglars, threats from riding in a plane, threats from driving across a bridge. You can go on and on. But the greatest threat in the world might not be obvious to us at first. 
When speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, Jesus addressed what the disciples perceived to be their greatest threat, which was the Pharisees' plot to kill Jesus and subsequently and causally to kill them too. In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, the Lord said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. (laughs) It's quite a statement. Then he says, after that, there's no more they can do. But I tell you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, speaking of God, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In this, the Lord casts the greatest attention of our heart to the greatest threat in human existence and experience. And the greatest threat to any and every person who has ever lived is God. God is your greatest threat. He's our greatest threat. We have sinned and find ourselves at odds with the great creator, the almighty God. And because of our sin, he is rightfully and righteously at odds with us in wrathful anger. Speaking about God's wrath, God's judgment, especially hell, is not popular these days. Now, I use those as words to introduce what we're gonna be talking about today, but also to show you that The threats that we face then have changed a bit, but not the greatest threat, which is God himself. I don't want to scare anyone or freak anyone out, but you do realize that there could be a new virus that comes next month, next year. There could be a new threat. Interesting to look back at those words from the perspective of being in the shadow of COVID-19. But we're brought back to the same realities that we studied in the book of Romans and it took us five years to get through that book. And that is the glory of God and the good news that he saves through his son Jesus Christ and the reality of the reason for that great gift which is our sin and sinfulness. What is the gospel and why does it matter? Well, I wanna break this this study down into three parts, if I may, and I have to tell you, because I, I just preached uh, an hour and a half ago to first service, that I didn't get finished, and so I have circled in my notes where I have to finish, so this is going to be at least a two-parter, just a little heads up on that, because I think it's so dense and rich with truth that we have to understand. So let's begin, we'll only look at two of them today, but we're going to begin by looking at three essential parts of the gospel. Let's break it down into three simple parts, three essential parts. The first are a set of facts to believe. In fact, you can put the the adjective historical facts to believe in front of that. Historical facts that a person must believe in order to believe the gospel, to receive the gospel. You can almost look at this outline that we're going through today and and we'll bump into next week as well as the the lowest common denominators of the gospel. You can't get any less than what we're going to be talking about. You can certainly add different nuances and dimensions, though, beyond that. We have to begin with historical facts, facts that must be believed and understood to receive and then to explain the gospel. It's founded in historical 
facts. Jesus and the good news of God that we call the gospel does not fall into the categories of mythology or fairy tales or legend. Unlike liberals who have preached this for centuries, we don't talk about Jesus in the same way as we do Zeus or Hercules or King Arthur. Why? Because he was real. I always struggle, by the way, when I say that. Because he was real, he is real, and he will be real. Theologians struggle sometimes with even the tense of a verb to use with Jesus. Do you say what Jesus taught or what he teaches? Well, yes. You say, well, Jesus was or he is? Well, yes, and you add he's going to be as well. It's wonderful to think of his eternality. German historian Bruno Bauer proposed that Paul was not a reliable source in the gospel, not historically dependable. He was really the father of what we call the mythicists that still exist to this day. A mythicist is someone who says that the gospel and Jesus and most of the Old Testament really is rooted in, in, in kind of universal paradigms and meta-narratives that are myths that may have a kernel of truth but really don't have a lot of historical relevance or reality or connection. Bauer argued that Christianity was forged in a synchronistic and mythological context. And specifically, he led these mythicists who say this. Paul's epistles lack detailed biographical information of Jesus, therefore they should be discredited. But Paul was basing everything he wrote on the biographical histories of the gospel, so he wasn't out to to write a gospel. They also say the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are not historical records, but fictitious historical narratives. Based on what? They also say there are no independent eyewitness accounts. I'll show you in a few minutes. We have at least 500 witnesses and accounts. They also say Jesus was a mythological being who was concretized in the gospel. Oh, there was a man who kind of did some of these things, but when they wrote about him, they borrowed from each other and made him bigger than he really was and do things he never did and say things he couldn't have said. If you keep along the mythicists, these ideas were popularized by the German theologian. It's hard to even say the word theologian. Rudolf Bultmann in the mid-1900s who developed this mythology to say that we need to find spiritual realities that are somewhat connected to the Bible but without receiving the Bible as an historical record. Flip the coin though. E.F. Harrison said this. Some religions, both ancient and modern, require no historical basis for they depend on ideas rather than events. Christianity is not one of these religions. It is firmly yoked to history. In his classic work on Christianity and liberalism, J. Gresham Machen said this, if any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, it is that the Christian movement is at its inception, at was at its inception, not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way founded upon a message. It was based upon not mere feeling, but upon historically accurate 
facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. He goes on further in that book to talk about the primitive church not being concerned with so much with what these tales about Jesus were, but what he did and what he said that, that impacted them and we're the same. Even in our Apostles' Creed, we talk about the, the fact that he suffered under, remember the, remember the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That roots it in history. It gives it a date. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then listen to him. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that, listen to the history, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Why does it say he was buried? Don't you... Typically, buried dead people. Well, it was to show that how dead was he? Buried dead. That's how dead he was, according to the scriptures. That on the third day he rose, according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, to the twelve. That he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, probably up in Galilee, most of whom remain until now, but some have died. They've fallen asleep. I love this little phrase. Then he appeared to James, his, his half-brother, after the resurrection, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me also. Why does Paul go into all that detail? To make sure that we understand that the faith he is proclaiming is grounded in historicity, in historical fact. This is the foundation. If we don't have historical facts, we will never, ever have the true gospel. So what are those historical facts that we need to be aware of? Well, first, Jesus and his teaching. As we noted last week, Paul was fiercely passionate as he warned the Corinthians not to be deceived by what he called a different Jesus, another Jesus and a different gospel. Remember 2 Corinthians eleven four. If one comes and preaches another Jesus, from which we have, whom we have not preached, you received a different spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you are happy to do so. You bear it beautifully. Now the question we have to say is another Jesus, another other than what? A different gospel, different than what? And he's obviously saying the gospel that's rooted in historical fact in his preaching. The historical record of Jesus Christ contained in the four gospels is historically accurate and listen, eternally determinative. What we do with believing the historicity of those gospel accounts what we do with the historicity of believing the, the account of the advance of the church in the book of Acts has eternal ramifications. If you believe a Jesus different than that one and a gospel different than that one, you don't have God's gospel. You don't have a saving gospel at all. It just brings me no shortage of despair sometimes when I hear pundits on political shows and they're talking about, well, I know the Bible says that, but, or they say something like this, 
The Jesus I know would never. Or the Jesus I know is. There is no Jesus other than the one defined by the Bible. None. His life, what he did, what he said, how he taught, we only have one source for that. I've told you many times about my friend Dell, who I, who I served with many years ago in a junior high ministry. And I'll never forget one thing he, he told me. Uh, we were talking about our quiet times. And this is not a prescription, by the way. This is just me admiring what he, he did. He says, I have my normal Bible, Bible reading, but on top of my normal Bible reading, every single day of my life, before I go to bed, I try to read one chapter from the Gospels. I said, why? He said, because no matter what I'm learning in the Scripture, I never want to be more than a chapter away from my Savior. There's something wonderful there. Do you believe in Jesus' life and teaching only and as articulated in the gospel records? Also, we need to see the history of his suffering and his death. The death of Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. The fact that he died on a Roman cross has become the symbol of our faith, the shorthand for the meaning of faith. Many of you have a cross around your neck. It's the symbol, it's the place we look to see meaning about Christ's purpose. And it's circled around the historical fact of his suffering and his death. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He, he does two things, Peter does. He, he uses the death and the suffering of Christ as an example for us, but he also shows us that without understanding that historical and theological fact, we have no hope. We have no example. We have no aim. Listen, Christianity is not merely behavior modification. Every religion can change your behavior. I can change my dog's behavior. Christianity is Christ. It's the person of God in flesh. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So his suffering is an example for us, but listen to the historical factuality and theological nuances of this, who, he gets into Christology, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is an echo of Isaiah 53. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What an example for when we suffer and then Peter just can't help himself but leak into theology. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Another echo of Isaiah 53. And he'll have yet another one. For you were constantly straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. 
Peter's saying, I have no grounding for theological understanding and nuance without the historical reality of the Roman cross on which Jesus, Jesus was nailed, on which he died. It's not a myth. It really happened. And also, historical fact is Jesus' resurrection and reign. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says, if there is no resurrection, we should of all people be pitied. You should feel sorry for us. If there is no resurrection, you've believed in Christ in vain for nothing. We don't have a dead Messiah, a dead Savior. We have one who is alive. Listen as Aaron leads us week in and week out how much of what we sing to and about Jesus assumes that he's not dead. He's alive and he's running. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, our solidarity, we'll get to that next week, we also live with him. You can't live with someone who's dead. If we endured, we will also reign with him. Jesus rose from the dead. He is seated now at the right hand of God. He is glorified. What a... What a what a story we have that at the end of Jesus' life, the night before he was executed, his best friend on the planet, John, is so, is so tender in their affection, he's actually laying on his chest. Such familiarity, such, such sweetness, such informality. And that same John, just a few decades later, would be in a cave and the glorified Lord Jesus would show up to him and he would see him and recognize him and fall down as a dead man. He's reigning. He's alive. Just read through Revelation 5. He's the Lamb of God sitting on the throne. He's alive and he's reigning. These are facts do you, I, I'm making an assumption here. Do, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's more than an Easter sermon, an Easter reminder. And if he is alive, friends, that, that changes everything. There is no greater game changer than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And again, we'll come back to that more next week. The first essential fact, first essential part, rather, of the gospel are the historical facts you believe. Jesus was real. Even saying that, he still is real, and he'll be ultimately real by sight one day, right? Number two, theology to understand. Theology to understand. The historical facts of Jesus are different than any other historical facts of anyone else who's ever lived. Why? George Washington's Life and death, of which we can read and know quite a bit of, did nothing for me and God. Jesus' life and death does everything provided for us and for God. So let's break this down a little bit. Theology to understand. First of all, I want to look at who God is for us in Christ. Who, think about this. Who God is, the Father, 
for us in Christ. Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Our religion is a person. Our philosophy is a person. Our Lord is a Savior. Again, this is not behavior modification. This is an alternative uh, style of living from the world. We believe in a living resurrected Jesus who was dead two millennia ago. What is God doing for us in Christ? Well, you know, I struggled. I thought we could be on this point for about six years, honestly. Uh, he's everything for us. But one passage that I think grabs the essence of this as well as any other is Romans chapter eight. You might wanna turn there. Romans chapter eight that you know very well. Romans eight. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for you, nothing else ultimately matters. And then he goes into detail. This, this is one of the most profound, it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but God delivered him over for us to death. If he did that, how will he not also with Jesus, with him, freely give us all things? That doesn't mean everything that you ever wanted. You know, I want a Ferrari, so this kind of cashes in on that. That's not the, the, the point. Give us all things if in the context of every, everything we need, every protection we desire, every protection we need in this life and in the next. Then he goes straight to the heart of those who would come against us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Going back earlier in the chapter for God elects, God's elective purposes for those who believe. God is the one who justifies, makes us right before God. He, who is the one who condemns? What a statement. Are you struggling with assurance? Are you struggling with seeing sin come into your life over and over, sometimes having crippling doubt? If God has reached down to give you belief in the gospel, no one can steal that from you. Who is the one who can condemn the one who God has pardoned? The answer, no one, no one. So he answers, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who, dim, who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. There's the resurrection. Who's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. He's not only raised from the dead, he still cares and shepherds us, cares for us. Who will separate us? And now, if that's the case, then the next question is, okay, that all sounds good, but what if I lose that? Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? He says, let me throw some things at the wall. Will tribulation? Nope. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No way. Just as it is written, 
For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these threats, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Ah, then this this great crescendo. Paul says, I'm convinced. I am convinced that neither life nor death, angels nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. By the way, everything except God is created. Nothing will be able to separate us, listen to this change, from the love of God in Christ. He asked earlier, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? The unitarity and the solidarity of the, of the God has extended to us. Who is God for us in Christ? He is God for us in Christ. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The essence of salvation, the essence of eternal life is knowing and knowing better and knowing better and better and more and more person, the living, resurrected Lord Jesus. What has God done for us in Christ? Well, I know you know the answer to this. This is where the greatest levels of debate about the gospels itself lies in, not only in contemporary uh, theology, but also in the history of the church. Man, as we looked at last week, has a very serious and eternal problem, sin. We are born sinners, born with a stiff arm in God's face. And Paul instructs us that the wages of sin is death. But he also says in Romans chapter 3.23 and chapter 6.23 that all sin to fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're hopeless. Hopeless that... It's universal. No one's exempted. There's none righteous, not even one, he said in chapter three. Universal. Depth and breadth. That's our problem. And this is the good news. God made that problem, God made our problem his problem to solve. And God's never had a problem he couldn't solve. God acted. In order to take care of our sin problem, God acted. Salvation is fundamentally a gracious action of God. And to understand the gospel is to understand what God has done for us in Christ. Well, what has he done? He made provision to deal with our sin. Leviticus 16 tells us over and over and over that sin requires blood for its payment. It requires death, Sin is so bad, the only way to pay for it is death. And for a season, God, this is the whole book of Hebrews, for a season, God actually allowed for men to have an animal, a a, a goat, a, a sheep, a cow, die instead of that person. But it was temporary, and it needed to be repeated. Sin separates us from God. 
He is holy, he cannot, and he will not tolerate any sin in his presence, but out of love for sinners. God made a way for our sin to be paid for. We call that atoned for, covered, purchased. Now, we've talked uh, often in the past that the gospel is both um, complicated and simple, detailed and simple, And this is one of those areas that is so simple, we ought to be able to explain what I'm about to talk about to a four-year-old, but also so glorious that we should be able to look at the different nuances of this love for the rest of our lives and never exhaust our minds from its wonder. The way that God paid for sin, the way that God atoned for our sin is known by several descriptions in the Bible and they all overlap and they all talk about the same thing. The most common is penal substitution. Penal from penalty, substitute someone doing something for you. Penal substitution. In other words, God provided a substitute for our penalty of death and hell for sin. The wages of sin is death. The day you sin, you will die, uh, God told Adam and Eve. There, There needed to be a way to pay for that. We call that penal substitution, or we also call it substitutionary atonement. Same thing, different side of the coin. We also call it propitiation, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. The same idea, that God had anger that needed to be appeased, propitiated, satisfied. It couldn't just dissolve. It had to have an object for the outlet of that wrath because sin is so bad. Every sin will ever committed will be paid for either in hell by the person who committed it or on the cross by Jesus who died instead of that person who committed it because they received him by faith. You know, I've thought over the years about salvation and its cost and I'm so so glad that I'm not God and you should be too. Um, I mean, wouldn't there have been a way and, and this may have been may have been in the mysterious mystery of God's will and the will of the Son of God uh, at discussion in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why couldn't God have just said, all these sinners, done, gone. No more sin. Why couldn't if he have sent a magic door that you could walk through and you're instantly sinless? Why couldn't he have given us a a special fruit that we could eat and that would undo the fruit that Adam and Eve ate? Why couldn't he just keep the lambs going? Why couldn't he just say from heaven, pardoned? You ever thought about that? Why penal substitution? Why death? Because it shows us how horrific sin really is. It's so bad, every sin deserves the death penalty. And it's so heinous that only the death of the Son of God could have paid the price for its covering. Thomas Schreiner been here, preached for us before. He says this. These are such good words. 
Penal substitution functions as the anchor and the foundation for all other dimensions of the atonement when the scriptures are considered as a canonical, canonical whole. That's, that's a profound statement. I define penal substitution as follows. This is so good. The father, because of his love for human beings, sent his son who offered himself willingly and gladly to satisfy his own justice so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserve was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us. So that in the cross, both God's holiness and love are manifested. Jesus was executed on a Roman crucifix, a cross that would define our faith. It was penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, propitiation. Simply put, it's the doctrine that tells us that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer death, punishment, and curse. Huper, such a great word in the Greek, for us, which has two nuances, nuances instead of us and as a benefit for us. We use this, the word for in the same way. If I do something for you, it may be as a benefit, if I go to the store for you, it's not only a benefit, I'm doing it as a substitute for you. There's a substitution and the benefit side of that. Now, I have to tell you, because this is important as you're reading, as you're listening, as you're discussing, there have been an increasing number of voices attempting to take the horror out of the meaning of the cross in our generation. They consider the Son of God to be an outrage if it was at the hands of the Father. Sadly, these voices have been heard from the pulpits of liberal, now called emerging and emergent, even though it's going out of vogue, churches. It's nothing new, by the way. Spurgeon dealt with the same thing in his day. He said, if there ever should come a day when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing. The latest attack on the doctrine that Christ died for sinners by the providence and will of God is blasphemous. Remember Acts chapter two, we look at it often. Acts chapter two, verse 22. Men of Israel, the first Christian sermon ever preached was by Peter. Listen to these words, Peter says. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you also know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. Completely under the sovereign control of God. And then the next phrase, Peter says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. 
the latest tax on the doctrine of propitiation and substitutionary atonement, penal substitution, say that if God the Father was involved in the cross, the crucifixion of his son, they say that's tantamount to divine child abuse. Brian McLaren puts these words in the mouth of a fictitious character that he affirms. That sounds, talking about the cross, that sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse. It's not divine child abuse. It's divine love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He so loved the world that he did that. Peter says about substitutionary atonement, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all. That's a significant phrase because the sacrifices of the animals and the day of atonement was over and over annually, month after month. They would keep sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing, not Jesus. Christ died once for sins. The just for the unjust, the holy, righteous Lord Jesus who never sinned died for us in all of our sin. Why, why, why? Peter says, so, so that he might bring us to God. You know what that means? No other way to bring us to God except by penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, propitiation. Back to Romans 3 that we quoted a minute ago. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He goes on. Being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God made, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Publicly saying, he does absorb the wrath of God instead of you. He was the umbrella under which you can stand and the wrath of God is emptied on Christ and not on us. It caused his death. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, just gave an animal every year for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier. That's incredible. He satisfied his own righteousness and justice while at the same time being the one who did that in the death of his son to anyone who has faith in Jesus. So where do you boast? It's excluded. There's no works. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. What has God done for us in Christ? Everything needed for salvation. You know, I, was, uh, I grew up in Tennessee and I had a, an old youth pastor. He was a, when I was in junior high, he was an old country guy. I loved, he was just, influence still impacts me to this day. And he used to use a, a, a phrase that I know many of you have heard before and it's not new, but to most of you, it might be to some of you. He used to say, you trying to get to heaven by anything you did is like you trying to pull yourself up to the clouds by grabbing your bootstraps. And he would ask us junior hires, okay, grab your shoelaces. Now pull yourself up to the ceiling. And we would try. <laughs> and it never worked. He did it for us. 
he also imputed righteousness to us. You ever wonder, why didn't God just send Jesus for a weekend? Tell you what, go down on Friday, cross down in the afternoon, rise on Sunday, you're back by Sunday night. Why did he live 33 plus years in relative obscurity to die then? Because he was both, this is incredible, this is the doctrine of imputation. In every way God's law could have been obeyed, he obeyed it. In a sense, storing up divine righteousness by his obedience. Also, he had divine righteousness because of who he was. He was God, is God. So both by who he is and what he did, he has reservoired divine righteousness that we need to go to heaven. So on the cross, God treats Jesus as if he had lived our sinful life so that in heaven he could treat us as if we had lived his righteous life. What an exchange. What an incredible Exchange. That's the doctrine of imputation. He imputes our sin to the cross and he imputes his righteousness to us and to our account. He credits us. Romans 4, 5. Whoever believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Wow. He died for us. Isaiah 53, he was smitten of God and afflicted in verse four. In verse six, the Lord caused our iniquity to fall on him. In verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was judged, he was taken away, our judgment he took. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting an end to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, Not give an offering, but be the offering. And then in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he poured out himself to death, numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What did he do for us in Christ? Think about this, past, present, future. He justified us, made us holy and righteous because of faith in Jesus. That's our moment of salvation and belief. He sanctifies us, which is to bring us into conformity to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. We become holier and holier. And then glorification, which is one day we will go to heaven and be completely freed from this sin, have perfect bodies and live forever with him. You know, I find that most Most contemporary offers of the gospel emphasize justification and glorification and say very little about what it's gonna cost you, sanctification. And we're gonna talk about that next week. What God is doing for us in Christ. He's sanctifying us. It's no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, It's Christ who lives in me. And then this one simple verse, Galatians 4, 19. My children with whom I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's 
what he's doing in us. He's forming us into the character, the image of Jesus. Far more on that next week. And what will God do for us in the future in Christ? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9 tell us he'll give us an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, that we will see him one day as he is, that our faith now will become sight one day. The theology is really simply, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. What do we do with that? Well, quick preview. Next week, we will talk about response to make. And there are two. We believe and we repent. And I ran out of time, so we're gonna have to come back to that, those two next week. We believe and we repent. After these facts, after this theology, can I just ask you, do you believe this? Will you believe this? Let me say in as friendly way as I can, if you don't and if you won't, you literally have hell to pay and you'll never, ever exhaust that payment. I would just beg you to receive the good news that Christ has died for you. He's made substitution for your penalty For the atonement, he's died in your place instead of you. What kind of fool would say no to receiving that? Don't be that fool.